We're looking in Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13, then we're going to go into chapter 4, and we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 3, and the, the program that makes the bulletins cut off the last verse there, so I'm going to go just one verse longer, and you can, if you're following along in the bulletin, you can just uh, hear, hear the scriptures as I read it to you. So hear now the word of the Lord uh, to you, God's beloved people. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord, spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them abraze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word and we pray that you would be our teacher now, that your Holy Spirit would come as both the one who convicts our hearts and also the one who comforts our hearts. We need both of these things from your word, conviction and comfort. So give us ears to hear the words you would speak to us now. We open our hearts to you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, Amen. So we are getting to the end of uh, the book of Malachi that we've been looking at the last few months uh, j- today. And then on Christmas Day, we'll, we'll look at the final chapter of Malachi. And the book of Malachi, as we've seen, is in many ways a dialogue between God and his people. And uh, you can, so you can see in this passage, this passage uh, starts with a little exchange, verse 13, where it says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. So the Lord speaks to the people and it says, but you say, how have we spoken against you? So they reply back and then the Lord says, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And throughout Malachi, there are all these exchanges back and forth between God and his people. And at the heart of most of these exchanges, I think there's seven of them in the book of Malachi, is the heart of the exchange of what the people are saying is a spirit of cynicism towards God. You probably heard that right there where they said it is vain to serve God. There's no point in serving God. 
Why, you know, why should we have God in our lives? Is it even important? Does it even make any difference? And the reason for this uh, cynicism is because in Malachi was writing about 100 years after the Babylonian exile. So one of the major events of the Old Testament is the Babylonians invaded Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom in Israel. And uh, they invaded and they destroyed Jerusalem. They burned their temple. And this, this is the 6th century B.C. And then they brought all the, the Judeans into Babylon as exiles. And they were there for 70 years. And then the Lord returned them after 70 years. They reestablished them in their homeland. There were all these promises, and they rebuilt the temple. And they were anticipating that there was going to be this golden age where the Messiah was going to come, and there was going to be all of this prosperity. And now it's 100 years later. It's been 100 years since that expectation, and it hasn't happened. The Messiah hasn't come. And Israel, they were still living under the oppression of the Persians. And, and so even though they were kind of going about their religious life, right, they would bring offerings to the temple, but it was always their worst animals, you know, the animals that they had to get rid of anyways. Well, I'll bring those to the Lord. He can have those. I didn't want the blind, you know, animals that I can't sell and make any money on. I'm going to bring those to the Lord. And so there's this certain half-heartedness about, you know, does this even matter, walking with the Lord, believing in him? And I think this skepticism, this cynicism is, is very similar to our culture. You know, our culture is kind of uh, feels this way about the Bible, about church, about God, about Jesus, about the gospel. Does this even matter? And what happens in this text right here towards the end of Malachi is there's a group of people in Malachi's day who said, we recognize that our culture has become kind of hard-hearted towards the Lord. We're not going to be that way. We believe. We want to follow the Lord. We trust his promises. And, and you know, we're going to wait patiently for his work in our lives, and we're going to stay with him. We're going to trust in him. And so uh, in many ways, what this passage is about is what, what we are as a church. That's what the church is in the culture. In a culture is a group of people who have come together and formed a community to say, you know what? We believe the Lord. We're going to trust him. We're going to have him in our lives. And so this morning, what we're going to talk about is what does it mean to be the people of God, to be the church? What is this community that we are, that God has formed? And in this passage, Malachi points out three important qualities of what the church is. And this is what, this is what we're going to look at this morning. These three important qualities that the church is covenantal. I'll explain what that means if you don't know that word. The church is covenantal. Second, the church is missional. The church has a mission. And the third is the church is grace-centered. Okay? It's a covenantal community, it's a missional community, and it's a grace-centered community. Those are, the, those are kind of some of the hallmarks of what the church is all about. So that's what we're going to look at together this morning. So first point is this, is that the church is covenantal. And by covenantal, a covenant is a relationship that's built on promises. And so by saying that the church is covenantal, it means, well, God has made certain promises to us. He says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And we made promises back to him and say, you know, we're going to believe in you. We're going to obey your word and listen to what you say. And then also, though, we make promises to one another. They say, we're going to be together. We're going to love each other and support and encourage each other like a family. And you can see that here in this verse, in verse 16. Look at what it says in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So those who said they believed, they came and they started talking about their faith with one another. And they, they came together like that. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book 
of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, this is very interesting that, you know, in the midst of kind of the half-hearted spirituality of their nation, these people come together and they write a book, a book of remembrance, um, which was a scroll where they all wrote down their names in the scroll and they laid it before the Lord and say, Lord, here's a list of the people. I put my name on there. And we're the people who want to trust in you, who want to believe, who want to walk with you. And this is something they all signed and they brought it to him. And what they're doing is they're making official their communal commitment to the Lord. And actually, we know something about this, some of Malachi's contemporaries, some of the other books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. If you go and read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find there's all these lists of names in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so like Nehemiah 7, all the people who returned from Babylon to, to kind of reestablish Jerusalem, they all wrote down their names. There's a list of all the names who came back. And then in Nehemiah 9 and 10, there's this statement of confession where they confess all the sins together. And then all these people say, we're going to write down our names. The beginning of, of Nehemiah 10 is all the list of these names. And people say, we're going to teach our children about the Lord and we're going to obey the Lord. And, uh, and there's this commitment. And they're going to put all our names down. And, you know, that's a major part of the Bible. You read through the Bible. Some of you might have read through the Bible and you get to these places where there's all these lists of names. You say, this is boring. Did I just skip this part? But actually, it's important to the Lord, each of those individual names. Actually, there's a whole book of the Bible called Numbers. And what Numbers is talking about is God counting all of his people, the people that belong to him. And the thing that defined this community that had come together under this covenant it says in verse 16, were those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now this act of saying, I'm going to make official my inclusion in this community is precisely what we do in church membership. So, you know, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we had a whole group of people who stood up in front of the church and said, you know what, we're going to be a part of Christ Church Bellingham. We've read a membership covenant. We've read all about what it means to believe in the Lord and commit ourselves to him and to commit ourselves to you all. And we want to be a part of this mission and this work together and put our name in the church rolls. And I'm going to fill out the thing and give you all my information. And we're on the church rolls. It's because that's what the Lord does is he makes these lists of, of, of his people. And he even tells us that the Lord himself has this book of life where his names are, our names are written in his book. And this should be a comfort to us that when God saves us, he does not save us as individuals, but he saves us into a family. My identity is that I'm a part of Jesus' people. I'm a part of the community that Jesus is forming around him. And, you know, for many in our culture, we don't understand this because our culture is is very individualistic. We don't understand community. Community is very hard for us. And so, you know, we don't, for example, when you become a Christian, we don't put an emphasis on that you were baptized into the church. We think much more about when did you accept Jesus into your heart and have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, having a personal relationship with Jesus is, of course, important. The Bible talks about that. And all of us individually should seek to develop a personal relationship with Jesus. But that does not negate that we have an identity as a community. And that's something that we learn to do together as a community. And so many people in our culture would say that spirituality is a private, individual matter. Right? It's just something that's very personal to me. And um, I just want you to imagine, though, let's say whatever the true spirituality is of the world, you know, the true spirit of love that's behind the universe finally came into the world and started acting in the world. The, you know, the, the, the deep love behind the universe started acting in the world. 
what would it look like? What would the effect be? Would it make, leave you by yourself? Would it isolate people to, you know, close their eyes and have private spirituality by themselves? No. If the deep love was poured out into the world, at the very minimum, what we'd expect it to do is form communities. Bind people together in love who serve one another and love one another and they have deeper relationship. That is what we would expect. It has to do that. And that's precisely what the gospel does. It forms us into these covenant communities that are bound together by God's promises and our promises to one another. Now, someone might hear that and say, well, okay, I understand that God's work in the world forms these covenant communities. But isn't that one of the main problems with religious institutions? Is they form these groups. And the group says, we are God's covenant community. And God loves his covenant community, but he despises everyone outside of the community. We are his favored people. And that means that everyone else is not under his favor and not he does not like them. And there is this in-out structure that is created by the group. Those are the people that are in and those are the people that are out. And the people that are in always mistreat the people who are out. And let me just say that's an important question. It's a question that the Bible deals with over and over again. It's a major question that Jesus was dealing with in his ministry. And that, the answer to that leads to a second quality of the church. It's not just that the church is a covenant community. It's bound together by these promises. It's like a family that's bound together. But the church is also a missional community. And the covenant community of the church has a mission. And Jesus has shown us that this mission that he's given to us is one of word, speaking something about who God is, and deed, acts of love to each other and to the community, those outside of our community. And those elements, both the word and deed, mission tell us that the purpose of this committed community is that we do not exist for ourselves. We don't exist for those who are in, but we actually exist for the sake of those who are out. And so actually both of these elements of the mission of the church you can see in this passage. Let me show you each of them. So first of all, our mission is a mission in word. And you can see this in verse 17. Look at what verse 17 says. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Now you might read that verse and say, you know, well, that sounds like the church is God's treasured possession. He thinks they're very special and he loves the treasured possession and he doesn't treasure everyone else. But if you read it that way, that'd be a mistake. And I'll tell you why. Because what Malachi is doing, Malachi is quoting a a really important verse from the book of Exodus, Exodus 19. And Exodus 19 is a part where Israel, they were slaves in Egypt, and, and God liberated them out of slavery from Egypt, and they came out into the wilderness. Remember, Moses led them out, and they went to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where they got the Ten Commandments. And right before the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments, this is what he tells Moses to tell all the people. Listen to this. Listen for the treasured possession. Exodus 19.6. A four, I'm sorry. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And, listen to this, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. That tells us what a treasured possession is. We are God's treasured possession because we are a nation of priests. We are the people who talk to the world about God. And actually, in the New Testament, uh, Peter picks up this verse and applies it to the church. And actually, this is, I have to read you one more verse. This is 1 Peter 2.9, which is the verse that we get our mission statement for our church from. This is what it says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so being God's treasured possession means you are the people who have been rescued by grace and you go tell the world about God's grace. You're the priests who go and tell, tell the world about God's grace. And you know, so when God sends us out into Bellingham, we're the people who are willing to lovingly, respectfully, talk to people about God. We will have deeper conversations about life and about why we're here and about the deep struggles in life and who God is. And, you know, I'll tell you, there are many people, many people in your workplace who are your neighbors, who are in your families, that if you are not pushy, if you're open, they want to talk about deeper things. You know, they're having shallow conversations all over their life, and who will go to a deeper level with me? And we are those people. that What they're looking for is a priest. <laughs> they want a priest. And what that means is that in your family, you are the priest there. You know, the person you go to to talk to about, you know, deep things and struggles, God put you there as the priest. Or in your workplace, you're the priest. And, you know, people might even say that. Oh, you know, the, <laughs> the Christian person over there. And, and there might come a time in, their, time in their life where they need a priest to talk to, and you're the priest that they have placed in their, in their life at that time. And, you know, I was, my uh, son Will uh, asked me a couple weeks ago, he said, Dad, um, how do you get into conversations with people? <laughs> I thought it was really great question. How do you get into conversations? He's like, you know, I like when you get it. I love getting into like really good conversations, but like, how do you, how do you start really good conversations? And I think that is a great question. That's a question that all of us should be asking because we're the priests in Bellingham and in Whatcom County. How do you get into really good conversations? It's a skill that God has called all of us to. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist for this community. We are the people that people people can come and talk to and know that they can talk about the deeper things of life in a loving and approachable and not pushy manner. And so, first of all, we have a mission in, in word. The other thing is also we have a mission in deed, acts of love to our community. And again, that may not be something that you picked up in this passage, but verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, is not printed there in the bulletin. Let me read it again to you. I think this is the one that tells us about words, deeds of love to our community. This is what it says. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you may not read that verse as an act of mercy, you know, treading down the wicked, stamping down the wicked. But if you think about it, where in the Bible do you read about treading down, stomping on the wicked? And if you know the Bible at all, actually in the opening chapters of the Bible... It's the, one of the most important cryptic prophecies of the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 3, God makes this promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. It's a whole picture of this Savior who's going to come and he's going to stomp on the wicked under his feet. And it is a great image of the evil one, the oppressor, who brings 
misery and oppression to all the people of the world who is being defeated. And that we actually play a role in the defeating of the darkness in the world, the curse that's over the world. And so God's people treading down the evil is speaking about our mission to stand against injustice in the world and to work against it. And so, for example, you know, if you care for the children in our community, you know, some of you have been involved in foster care. There's some families in our church have been involved in foster care or have gone next door. We had an after-school program next door. And if you care for children who do not have a family, they are experiencing the injustice and the curse that the evil one has put on humanity, and you are relieving that. You are freeing them from it. Then you are stamping injustice and the evil ones under your feet. You are part of Jesus' work to bring peace and, you know, comfort to the nations. And you might think, well, you know, that's a very creative reading of that text. I'm not sure that's what Malachi was talking about. This sounds like a holy war that he's, that he's describing. But actually, Jesus reads that text in this way. In, in Luke chapter 10, Luke, uh, uh, in, in Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples on this mission to go all out through, through Israel and to preach the gospel. And they're freeing people from, like, De- demonic possession, you know, who've had these you know, really difficult lives, and, they're, and they come back to Jesus. And this is what it says in Luke 10, 17. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And this is what Jesus said to them. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And so the missional acts of love we do in this community are how we wage war against the evil one, the oppressor of this world. That's how we participate in it. It's through acts of love. And so the church, what the church is, is this covenant community that's bound each other together in these acts of love, receiving God's promises to us, making promises to one another, and which has a mission that says we do not exist for ourselves, but we are actually priests for Bellingham and Whatcom County, and we are, you know, doing these acts of love to fight injustice in the world. But, you know, again, someone might complain at that and say, you know, there is a hint still of arrogance in that. You know, that's the problem with the church. The church thinks that they are here to save the world. You know, you're going to tell us all about God, and you're going to stop all the injustice in the world. And, you know, isn't that going to make you think that you're arrogant, that you're, that you're more special than other people because you do all these good things, to, you know, to, to bring the knowledge of God because you have this great mission? And, of course, one answer to that is to say, well, this, this whole act of stomping on evil and crushing evil is ultimately something Jesus does. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head, who crushes evil, and it is only in him that we participate in that. But the other answer to that is the person who says that there's arrogance in that is partly right. And, you know, in that scene that I just mentioned where Jesus sent out all his disciples to go do this mission work in Israel, and then they come back and they're all excited and they're like, whoa, you know, we're like casting out demons. This is incredibly powerful. And he says, listen, I've given you authority to, you know, to tread on serpents and scorpions under your feet. You're going to actually produce life and justice. You are actually going to be a blessing to the nations. But then he gives, he qualifies that statement. This is what he says right after. He says, nevertheless, do not Rejoice in this. 
that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, be careful that your joy, your identity is not in the mission. It's not in the things that you're going to accomplish in the world or the people that you're going to help or the good deeds that you're going to do. That, that's going to lead you to despair or it's going to lead you to arrogance. It will either burn you out if your identity is in your mission or it's going to make you think that aren't you so much more righteous than everyone else. He says your identity must be that God wrote your name in heaven surely by his grace. And this, is the, this leads to the third aspect of the church. The church is a covenant community that has a mission and the church is also grace-centered. The engine that empowers that whole mission is the grace of God. And, uh, you know, I mentioned to you that I've been reading a uh, biography about St. Augustine. St. Augustine was basically the theologian of grace in, in, the, in the early churches, you know, fourth and fifth century. And much of our understanding of grace comes from Augustine. And uh, he was a, a bishop in Hippos in North Africa. And when Augustine became a bishop, one of the first controversies he had to deal with was a group called the Donatists. And the Donatists had an understanding of the church that the church was to be this very pure and isolated community from the world. And they, they, they were very... Um, rigorous about making sure there was not a, you know, a hint of compromise within the church. And Augustine, was, he had a very different vision of the church. And he said, well, listen, the church is God welcoming the nations into his family. And what that means is that there's going to be all different kinds of, first of all, the church is going to have to interact with the world quite a lot because the, God's inviting the world into his family. So we're going to have to you know, connect with the world. And then he also says, we're going to have to bring all kinds of difficult people into the church. Because if we're bringing all the world's, world in, there's going to be people that have all kinds of problems. And we have to be prepared that they're going to be a part of our community. And it's going to take time for them to learn about God's love for them and learn how to love other people. And we have to be very patient. There has to be grace for that. And so he gives this analogy that he says, you know, the church is like a body. And, you know, the Bible says that, that it uses that analogy, the church is like a body. And he says the church is like eating souls which is a very strange image, uh, that the church is eating souls. That's how people get incorporated into the body, is the church eats them. And I was talking to Nick Kelly about this this week, and he was like, that is a strange image, you know, the, eating souls. But um, one of the things that he says is that the church, though, is very indiscriminate. It doesn't, mat it doesn't mind if you taste bad. And he says there are certain people that taste especially bad and the church will still eat them and incorporate them into the body. And I just thought this is an incredible image. And when you have that understanding, I didn't taste particularly good, but the church was willing to eat me and incorporate me into the body. It leaves no room for arrogance. I'm amazed that the church would have me. I'm amazed that Jesus would have me. And you can see that in this passage, Jesus is deeply resistant to arrogance among his people. It's one of the things that he goes after first. You look at verse 1, what it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. And I'll tell you, that's an important part of Christmas as we come to celebrate Christmas. If you go read the gospel narratives about when God, the great king of all creation, became a baby in a, in a poor family in a manger, and one of the things that everyone was saying about this Savior who was going to come is that he would be responsible for the rising and fall of many in Israel. That means that the arrogant were going to be brought low. He's humbling the arrogant, and the lowly were going to be raised up. 
That's what Jesus does. And what we find out in the gospel is we're faced with the question, will we be lowly enough to worship the lowly Jesus who's in a manger, in a cave? Am I low enough to worship him? And what happens is when we re- realize that, oh, wow, in my, my lowliness, in, you know, how bad tasting I am, Jesus received me and brought me in. What effect does that have when we view ourselves that way? I, I'm welcomed sheerly by grace. My whole life is about grace. What, what effect does that have on us? Well, I love the way Malachi puts it. This is in verse 2. It's kind of cut off for you in the bulletin, but this is what it says. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. That's how Malachi describes people who receive grace. They're like these baby calves that have just been released. You know, baby calves are all awkward with their legs and they're bouncing around. They're so excited they got these legs and they're hopping around, you know, in the pasture. And there's just this playfulness and a cheerfulness. You know, a bouncing, leaping calf. There's nothing serious about it. And the church does not take itself seriously. There is a cheerfulness and a joy that God has welcomed us in. And it is that cheerfulness that goes with the humility that, that comes with receiving grace. And that is the thing that keeps us from this arrogance, is we are a grace-centered church that has made us joyful, like skipping around calves and we want to go play with people. We want to know people. And that should be the spirit of coming into a grace-centered church. And so what this text faces confronts us with is this question, first of all, are you a part of a covenant community? Have you put your name to bind yourself to God's people, say, I want to be a part of what God is doing, I believe, and I realize I want to be a part of the mission, I want to have, I mean, amazing, I could be a priest (laughs) out in this community, I could, you know, do these works of, of love that is stomping down injustice, I could be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world, are you a part of that? And the way to become that is by learning the grace of the baby in the manger. The lowly God who welcomes the lowly into his family. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great joy of being a part of your people. That you do not save us as individuals you save us into a family. You teach us to be brothers and sisters. You teach us to be your children, to rest and trust in your love. And as you teach us, you also send us out. You've given us good works to do in this community. Teach us to have good conversations. Open those doors for us. And Lord, give us great joy this Christmas as we reflect on your grace to us that you've received us into your body, into your people. We are so deeply grateful and thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.